Welcome back to Take a Moment. I'm Nathan Bennett. I'm Mari Yamaguchi, and we have a special guest today, the CEO of Genesis, Mr. Tony Bates. This is an incredible lesson about what it takes to be a leader of gigantic organizations. Tony has led many businesses that I won't even name now. You'll hear what those are uh, in the episode. But to see his strategic thinking, uh, his passion for people, his passion for diversity in a global company is an inspiring thing to see. And it makes me excited to work here. Honestly. Absolutely. Yeah, for me as well, too. I also listened to a recently a podcast where they featured Ben Horowitz. If nobody's familiar with mm-hmm. Ben Horowitz, he's also one of those leaders that has an incredible track record as well. And he talked about leadership and management and that they are very two very distinct things. Leadership requires creativity, being able to communicate and inspire people. And management is more about operationalizing it and making it into something where people can start actioning and things like that. And I think that's one of the great things that Tony brings to every organization that he comes to because he's able to accelerate that organization from being very small to being that trajectory is is immense that he has. And it's also great to see a leader who is as candid as he is about his own life and some of the things that he's had to overcome and struggles that he still faces. And it kind of lets you know that, yeah, I mean, we're all, he's just a real, a normal guy, right? Um, And in fact, it's amazing that he was a college dropout, but like so many other CEOs in Silicon Valley and really, really intelligent people, he just had a hunger for knowledge. And he's kind of self-taught in a lot of ways, which is incredible. The non-traditional, which also is kind of that, piece that key to becoming innovative because you're not going with the flow you're not going with what's just there you're always thinking about outside the box how can i make this better thinking it looking at it from literally the outside in right and creative approaches to those problem solving things uh this was an incredible conversation you'll get to know genesis more you'll get to know tony more and i think you'll learn a lot yes so we hope you take a moment and listen with us Tony, talk to us about your growing up, your formative years just a little bit. I know your mother was a hairdresser, right? Yep. Your father was a builder? Yep. Um, What did you learn from them as a child? What did you observe uh, in your parents that might have prepared you for your multiple roles as CEO? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, yeah, just as background, uh, I grew up in England, um, southwest England, and I did. Your up... accent was a little bit more Brooklyn <laughs> to me, so English. A yeah, interesting. Yeah, I thought South. But, but... Uh, you know, I think maybe there's a couple of good takeaways I learned. Uh, so I really grew up with my stepfather and my mother, uh, and yeah, my stepfather was a, a, a builder. He's a small contractor, and I would say he I mean, he worked so hard. I mean, he ran a small business, um, and I think. He really taught me that the notion of work ethic and, you know, getting up every day and, um, you know, building something, right? At the end of the day, he was building something with someone else. But I think more importantly is what my mom taught me. I, you know, I try and think back. I mean, we're very close actually still today. And uh, I think she taught me the, the most important lesson, which is really never to judge anyone, have empathy. And, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a cliche phrase, but never judge anyone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Mm-hmm. But it always stuck with me. Um, and I try to... Think about that as a leader, 
um, when you think about teams, when you think about customers and partnering, try and take the view that, you know, you really have to put yourself in their shoes. And so she really instilled that in me in a very young age. One of our first interviews that we did for this podcast, oh, eight, nine months ago, mm -hmm. we were speaking to uh, a Genesis customer. She was a contact center supervisor. And we said, what's the one thing that you look for in potential employees when you're hiring? Maybe it's something that can't be taught. And she said, empathy. Yeah. The most important. She said, mm -hmm. we're here to help people. So I think it's amazing that your mother instilled that or that's what you really got from her. Role. Yeah. And, and not to dive too much into uh, how exciting uh, what we do is, but I think that that's at the root, right, of what we're trying to create, which is incredible customer experiences and use tools and technology wherever possible to kind of help assist with that empathy, right? give you the context of the conversation, of the situation. You know, I mean, one of the things I've loved since I've been Genesis is hearing these CX hero stories. And basically the, uh, the fundamental aspect of those, it's really about empathy, understanding, uh, sort of breaking rules to solve problems for other people. And I think that's really, really, really important. Absolutely. And listening. I think that was one of the other pieces that our CX yep. heroes have always talked about is the listening piece and in, in in relation with empathy. Right, uh, it's almost like you can't have yeah, that listening right. until you know more about the person. So you've got to listen One with so the that other. you can absorb yep. that empathy and share it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe if I can just expand, I think listening is, is crucial. Um, but like sort of understanding, you know, I'm a big believer, we could talk more about it in this, uh, the idea of the Enneagram, um, which is, you know, it's a personality uh, assessment tool that really gives you a chance to understand the sort of differences in people's personalities. and. You know, if you're a, uh, an agent talking to a customer, there's only so much information you can get. So listening's a piece of that. But the other piece, I think, is the more you can understand their situation and what they're going through, the better experience you can give them at the end of the day. Not to go too far down the track of Enneagram, because we could talk about that for three hours Yeah. <laughs> uh, in this room, I know. Uh, just out of curiosity, what are you and what's your wing? Yeah, I'm an eight with a seven wing. I don't Which know is... if everyone understands what we're talking about. So, so. he's a reformer yeah. with an enthusiast wing. And I'm the exact opposite. Really? I'm the what exact opposite of that. I'm an enthusiast mm -hmm. with a reformer. Wing. Yeah. And, and interestingly, Interesting. just, uh, you know, my wife's a two. And uh, if, if you study the Enneagram, we have a direct relationship. There's sometimes simplistically, you could say she's a giver and I'm a taker. Um, I think that's a little bit too simplistic, but <laughs> but it is a, it's a great harmony. Um, and one of the things I think you should strive to do, uh, if you understand the Enneagram, is always try and find out how you can look to yourself in terms of your own personality, play to those strengths, but also become, I want to become more of a two every day, right? It has a Building great, that self-awareness. Absolutely. Piece, and it, right? that has a lot to do with empathy as well. Uh, understanding the other types of people mm -hmm. and understanding their pitfalls, their weaknesses, and also their strengths. And how they would like to be communicated right. with as well, too. Okay, in before we get down that Enneagram path, I know. We can We can there. talk. That's another episode, <laughs> that everybody. Is, yeah, yeah, we can, let's later. do a separate one <laughs> on that. Later. Tony Bates explains yes. the Enneagram to you. So what got you interested in pursuing a career in technology? Yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, I was sort of uh, somewhat late to um, computing. I didn't grow up with it in our household. It, you know, it, for f folks of my age, it was would have been still early on. But some people were starting to dabble with computers. And when I graduated school, we don't call it high school in England, but when I was 18, I didn't really know what to do. And so I sort of thought, well, your mechanical engineering sounds good. I mean, it seems like it can take me in a bunch of places. I was a super mediocre student, so it wasn't like I had my lion's pick of the, the best universities to go to. And I went to a school called South Bank Polytechnic. They, they changed all the polytechnics and now they're universities. And I didn't really enjoy the course. Uh, it was sort of a, a mixture of 
part engineering, part mathematics. There was some practical stuff around that you learned how to weld and lathe, and that was kind of cool. But the bit that I actually liked was it was the first time I'd been introduced to, to using computers, and it was really to do my technical journal, right? So I'd be writing up your papers, and I found myself really uh, almost a magnetic attraction to the computer machine room. And this is way back in history, and for, for the young listeners out there, they probably won't know some of these machines, but we used to work on a thing called a DEC-10. And you could program in this language called Pascal with this library. And basically it was just think of it like a, a rich formatting uh, document uh, format type of processing. But out of it, out of this plotter came these beautiful color graphics. And I was just shocked that you could do this. And so I got more and more interested in, in it um, and less and less interested in the course. And fundamentally I dropped out and over the summer, I sort of thought, well, what should I do next? And I, thought, I just want to learn more about computers. And so uh, I started applying for computer operator jobs. That's literally think of like loading punch cards and loading tapes, right? It's, it's going back a bit. And as luck would have it, I ended up at the University of London Computer Center interviewing. And this was for a very basic computer operator shift, like come in at seven in the morning, you could leave at three, um, or if you wanted you, they'd let you work in the machine room and you could learn how to program. And I got that job and as I was walking out, the manager, the hiring manager said, you know, we also have an opening for a networks operator. Would you be interested there? They really need help. And I said, well, I don't even know what a network is. And they said, well, why don't you go just you know, chat with them if you like it. Uh, we, could, we can see how this works out. And I went into a room. It was about, we're in this studio here for those who are listening. Um, it's probably about a quarter the size of this room. And it was just racks of these flashing like red lights. And it was kind of how I had always imagined you know, computers to be like, if any of you have watched war games, you know, the whopper is like, right. that's how you yeah. thought computers would, would be. But when I'd gone in the other computer room, it, you know, it was these huge machines, but they were basically like stark refrigerators with no lights on them. And um, not very sexy, not very sexy. No. And so I, I don't know, I was just really attracted to it. And I, I took the job. Um, and, you know, without getting too deep into my technology path, I was at the right place at the right time when we had just started to use uh, networks to just link large mainframes to to schools. And I had a boss who basically was just so empowering. I mean, it's probably my next sort of leadership moment to really, he took on a lot of projects we weren't really qualified for, quote unquote. And then we just figured it out as we went along and we ended up running the ARPANET gateway between the US and the UK. And then as the internet and this, this protocol called TCPIP started to emerge, we took on the project to transform the UK academic network into what we know today as typical internet network. And I ended up running that project. And I just got so deep into the networking side. So it was just a bit of luck and just something about the the use of computers that I figured out on fairly, fairly early on in my career. And this is sort of early 20s in your lifetime when, when yeah, you Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I started at the university when I was 19, right? Yeah. I just uh, survived half a year, really, at the, uh, at the university. Well, you joined a long list of uh, Silicon Valley CEOs who didn't finish college. And I think that's fascinating. What was it that didn't quite hook you in university? Was it? Were I you think you bored? know. Uh, were you just like this? Just for me? You know, I think I'll be honest. I was a bit of a late bloomer with my curiosity as well. I wanted to go to work. I was. Uh, I mean, there's one backstory I guess I'll share. Um, I also had, quote unquote, fallen in love with someone, and uh, uh, she was going to go to college, um, and we had both decided to move in together in the summer. So one of us had to like work so there was a couple of motivations <laughs> there and uh so you know in, in many ways 
I think it just, I don't know, it just didn't fit what I was looking for at the time. And, right. you know, I think one of the challenges if you don't have a passion point early on, it can be a little daunting, I think, uh, education, because you, you know, it's hard to know what you want to do, but if you don't end up in the right place that really lights your fire, so to speak, you can drift. And I think at the beginning I was drifting a little bit, and so this kind of just kind of came in place for me. Do you see value in being able to learn from tinkering on your own and learning from your own, like, mistakes here, mistakes there, but then also I brought this thing to life as well, too. Yeah, I think being curious uh, but being able to be pragmatic is very powerful. There were some things that I did at the university job that were really mundane, like learning out, you know, I, I probably, I don't know how many coax cables I put the end of connectors on. <laughs> and, you know, and it, back then you used to have these D-type 25-pin connectors, and we used to solder the, every single one of them. Oof. But actually it was good grounding to really... Because it's not just like you do it like on a factory. It's like then I was like, well, why do we have to use all these pins? What do they all do? And 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 I think also back then it's very different. So you know it's hard to compare. The space for tinkering was super high, right? Because uh, I was in a university environment and I, I worked around people that were incredible teachers. So even though their day job was to operate this these uh, the computer and the networks, they gave me space to play with things. I learned you know self-taught a bunch of stuff, but I had this sort of you know, environment. So, so I think, yeah, that's a big part of it. But I also think today, if we think about folks coming up in this way, it's a lot harder. You need more of that base background of education and technology. I'm a big advocate for it. Right. And in, in, in your case, at that time, when you were 1920, you were sort of just reading a lot of books, you were just sort yeah. of soaking a lot of stuff up. Sometimes, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but like sometimes on the train as you were traveling, yeah. you're sort of teaching yourself this new language yeah you know i, I did self-teach like how to program c programming language with koenig and richie was kind of my bible back then and uh you know it's actually an interesting story the, the manuals of yesterday were very good they were like incredibly packed with information and they're well explained and thought through what's happened of course is over the years all of that's been abstracted away and rightly so in many ways like it's great to have a foundation of how like base physical networking works and computers work but the reality is where the creativity innovation is way up on the stack what we do as a software company so it was good in a way for me but i think the other moment you're, you're kind of alluding to was i had a long train ride and uh i actually maximized my time to do my kind of version of the gladwell 10,000 hour rule you know which was really immerse myself every day at roughly three hours total commute you know there and back and I just, I sort of fell in love with with reading these technology books. And what's interesting is there wasn't that many then. I remember when I started the job thinking, you know, you, you should have asked, well, where's the manual of how to do my job? And they're like, well, there is no manual. You, you, you know, we're going to figure this out together. We're breaking new ground. Um, so that, so I think this idea of dabbling, tinkering is, is very powerful. I think the difference today is where you do it, you know, where that level of creativity is and, and, and how you think about it from back then. This also might be apocryphal, but I've heard it said that you made it as a goal at some point in your life, and I'm interested to know when. Uh, you said, I want to be a CEO by the time I'm 45. Yeah. And you wrote down on a piece of paper three companies that you wanted yeah. to be a CEO. Uh, where did that sort of drive and determination come from? Did you have it early on, or is it something that sort of developed as you decided? Or was there like what? an aha moment? Yeah, was there a light bulb moment? You know, um, yeah, the real aha moment is my wife, actually, uh, Corey, to be very open about it, is that I was always goal-driven, but we started, when we got together, really this notion of, she had read somewhere that, I don't know if it's true, by the way, so it might be a myth, that 
the people, it was a Harvard Business School study, and I don't know exactly how they did it empirically, but those who wrote down their goals on a regular basis were more successful than those who didn't. Now, we could have a whole different discussion about what does success mean, you know, is it career, is it financial, is it, is it personal, and so on. But, um, but this idea of sort of writing down your goals, manifesting those, started to become something that we wanted to have as a family value. This is about 15 years ago, or maybe 14 years ago. So we, we really started to do it uh, every year, but not like in the way that many people have New Year's resolutions. Really sort of a mixture of personal, uh, you know, frankly, some of the material, some of them much longer, but just write them down roughly, whatever comes to you, to you, 15 to 20 of these goals. Put it away and then look back on it in the next year. And again, I- Do you do it as a family? As a family. You have four kids, yeah? Four boys, okay. yeah. And you know, as the boys, some of my boys are older, so they're not always at that same holiday right. moment we do it, but we try and do it regularly. And then we go back and look at it and it's incredible how many have come true. Um, and it's true, this story, I definitely wrote this down. And it's also true that one of the companies that I was really interested in was on that was on that list came true as well. And mm. I became the CEO of Skype. Obviously, you have worked for uh, lots of companies that are sort of household names, Skype, uh, GoPro, Microsoft. I want to kind of get to what drew you to Genesis in your new role as CEO, which you've had now for Five, yeah, almost six months. Almost right? six months, yeah. I was going to say. What was it about Genesis that you were like, that's the next company I want to go into? And Well, I, we, we, we need days for this one, but the two seminal moments in my career uh, was probably joining Cisco and then, and then um, CEO of Skype, right? And what they had in common is something I want to come back to with Genesis is that they were part of huge waves of change. And, you know, Cisco is really responsible for the connectivity age as we know it today. Um, and I was there, you know, with the high growth piece and really we take it all for granted today, but like, you know, laying these, this roads that, that we've laid down around the world to create this global phenomenon, what is the internet today? I'd seen very early on before I joined Cisco, I worked as a service provider and, uh, and just to be around people that wanted to, to create this on mass at scale was sort of the first wave. And then of course the communication era that Skype really championed and making it ubiquitous, whether it was voice, video, and text um, was what attracted me to that. But what really attracts me to Genesis is is this this new wave, which you know we tend to talk a lot about customer experience, but I really think that we're at a seminal moment in uh, not only for Genesis, but for the industry at large where we need to completely reshape the way people uh, experience a company when they call in from a service call, experience a company when they pitch something from, from the sales organization, experience a company when they're marketed to. And um, this notion, I think, of personalized economy or the, the world where we are all wanting to feel like a customer of one is upon us. And Genesis is as if not better positioned than any other company on the planet to do that. And we can maybe delve into that a little bit, but so that was that at the, is at the at the front of number one for me, which is we're a, we're in a uh, an industry that's incredibly relevant. Uh, you know, we serve billions of consumers through the thousands of customers that we have today. Two, I think we're a wave of needing to have an incredible experience that we don't have today often as consumers when we face companies. And three, the technology being ready to do that. Each of those, each of those other waves had technology that came along at the right time. There was a technological change. Ours is probably data, machine learning, uh, as much as anything, but uh, that enabled that. So that's the big picture. 
The second piece that I love about Genesis is, is where we are in our cycle. You know, we're a major cu uh, customer across enterprise, mid-market, commercial, very strong revenue base, incredible relationships, but we're sort of at the beginning of what's possible back to the first one. And I love the idea of kind of, let's just say, taking it to the next st um, stage of growth. And then I love the diversity and international makeup of the company. You know, there's a question that I get asked all the time. Whenever you, you meet people and you say, oh, where do you work? And then you explain where you work and then they say, where's it based? You know, and it's sort of very old school thinking. It's like, well, I, I say we're based everywhere. Uh, I don't say we're based in Daly City. We happen to be sitting in Daly City today. Um, and I love that about Genesis. Um, and I think that it's, you know, it's kind of probably evolved quite organically and through some acquisitions, but it's something for us to really embrace. Um, if you harness the global capabilities of companies like Genesis and you take all the inputs and you, you empower the organization to act as one, but you know, it's a classic, you know, sort of think globally, act locally, we can really achieve great things. So these are the sort of three big ones for me. When you're talking about employees, kind of want to go back to evolving technology means also an evolving workforce. How is building the right employee experience essential for a company? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they go hand in hand. I mean, you know, they're, they're very essential. I do think that we should recognize the, the employee experience is changing. And, uh, you know, one thing that perhaps people don't know about Genesis, which you know, we're a very wor a virtual workforce today. Um, just to give you a couple of stats, you know, we're in, you know, the global piece, we're in 60 plus countries. Um, uh, if you look in North America, you know, 20 plus percent of our workforce is completely virtual, you know, and I feel, feel like you can't really tell that fact. I think that can be a huge benefit. So I want to lean into that culturally. I think it's important. I think that um, we do need to adapt and change. I think sometimes that People may think because we serve a lot of enterprise customers, we may be very traditional and enterprisey, quote unquote, but it's nothing could be further from the truth. It doesn't feel like that from the right. inside. It yeah. doesn't feel, feel like enterprisey. Not yeah. at all, right? right. And uh, yeah, perhaps that's on, on me and, and the team to do some work on that because uh, it certainly isn't like that. I mean, again, for me as an outsider, it would land on you like that. But when you work here, I mean, it's totally different. So I think... A lot of the other things about employee experience, though, isn't just sort of what's the deal, you know, like how does it feel when you're in or out of the office? It's it's how engaged we are, how much we communicate. Do we have an aligned strategy that we can execute against? So one of the things I've tried to do uh, since joining is is paint a vision. We call it Genesis 3.0, and it's really around a, a North Star towards this thing I talked about earlier, which is is really, I think we can lead in what I call hyper-proactive personalization. So that goes beyond the traditional uh, way of thinking about traditional contact center, which we'd be known about. And then I think the other thing is really uh, making sure that everyone feels that this is a team sport, right? No heroing. This is not about uh, individuals who go the extra mile, uh, but then can't sustain that. We, you know, we're 5,500 person strong team here. I think what that means is that we really have to uh, be effective in terms of understanding the priorities, um, we can debate for a while, but then we act as one team. For those who are listening, we, you know, I like to use this notion of one genesis. And it's kind of obvious to most companies, but in reality, it's quite hard to do. So figuring out that is a top priority. And I think we're really on the journey to that. And it's going great. I get good feedback around it and we'll keep moving. We got to pause for a commercial break, but I really want to pick up with that philosophy of one genesis when we return. More with Tony Bates. Whoa. 
Hello there, Josh Reed here, producer of Take a Moment. As we continue our amazing conversation with CEO of Genesis, Tony Bates, we examine some of his achievements and goals over his first six months in the company. In addition to that, we'll take a look at his leadership experiences before transitioning into Genesis. For additional information, be sure to check out the resources below on Genesis.com, where you can read a few of his blogs. This includes his first 100 days here at the company, creating personal experiences for our customers, as well as the way forward for Genesis, introducing Genesis Cloud, previously Pure Cloud. And thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and share, and stay tuned for the next episode of Take a Moment. Tony, we mentioned before the break, the one Genesis philosophy, and yeah, it might seem obvious to other companies. Can you talk more about that? What is the one Genesis and what are some things that we can take away from there? Or folks who are CEOs of other companies, what can they learn from your approach? There's two ways one Genesis really uh, lands, I think. Number one is, look, as you grow, you get a little bit of these silos and a little bit of fiefdoms, you know, start to pop up. And, and one of the things I wanted to do is just recognize it, call it, and say, hey, we're not going to win with that kind of approach. Um, you know, just to, you know, I'm quite sensitive to this. You know, in the, in the, in the heydays of uh, Cisco when we were growing really fast, we had many, many business units. And in a way, it was quite powerful because sort of like think of it almost like civil innovation war, right? It's kind of like the, be you know, the best team wins, uh, but if they win, we all win. And I think that can work well in some cases. I think in the space we place, we don't have time for that. We've got to get teams gelling and really kind of firing all cylinders together. And so that was sort of an observation that, that landed on me and as I went around and, and met teams. And, you know, and when you look at it, they opened up and, and said, yeah, you're right. And so, so that's one. The other one it has to show up, though, is, is really in customer success, right? At the end of the day, we have to not just push technology out. We have to have customers not only give us input, but we really have to be there to create successful outcomes for our customers. And often in the typical software selling world, you know, you, you can be quite siloed, right? You kind of have the pre-sales, then you have the implementation, then you have the post-sale care, and then you have sort of the, uh, you follow up on the revenue and the maintenance, and they can get quite disjointed. Uh, in the SaaS world, that doesn't really work. In fact, it's a continuous loop in terms of the selling. It's not just about selling the initial product. Uh, it's making sure that, you know, they renew on time. It's making sure that, uh, you're providing value, that you're solving their customer problems. And so there's two parts to it. One is just how do we function better as a team cross-functionally? And then number two is how do we really embrace the new SaaS go-to-market? This is a cultural pivot for, for us and many other companies, right? And it's interesting, there's a lot of books written on how does SaaS GTM work, but they're normally written from the perspective of kind of how would a startup approach it. Mm -hmm. There's actually not that many great pieces of work written on kind of the on-prem to SaaS transition. You know, actually when I joined, I, I, I asked a few of my friends who are professors at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford, and you know, they kind of scratched around. There's there's a an Autodesk paper, there's one on SAP Cloud, but there's not sort of a whole definitive set of works on this. So, so that's just a natural thing that I needed to address as part of One Genesis. And I, I would say that I think that that's something that, um, as you mentioned, you know, companies that are in that transition also should look at. There's some good best practices and we would leverage those wherever possible. But you can't just say, well, you know, we're gonna to snap to say the Salesforce model because uh, Salesforce is completely born in the cloud, right? Um, you can't say that we would do it in a very traditional way and just kind of change our deal scoring because that wouldn't really fit where we're going as a company. And, um, you know, we're very unique in that sense that we have very strong 
large-scale enterprise customers as well as mid-market commercial customers, and we're migrating them towards the cloud, but we have to do it in some cases on their journey. You know, Some of the customers we have have been with us 20 plus years, so we have to back to the empathy we talked about and their understanding. So making all that work is pivotal that we don't end up sort of fighting against each other, right? Two different motions, different products. So really, uh, to me, that's at the root of what, what it's about. Is there a sense in which that Genesis is sort of writing that book that you were looking for? I, I, I think so. I, I think uh, there will be a bunch of these coming, but we're still in the early innings. So yeah, we get to write one of the books. So we're seeing a lot of technology changes. In the past, it's kind of like we've created the technology, so now people are consuming it. Now we're really seeing that shift over to the consumers, really dictating what the service and what yeah. they want now. How important do you think it is for companies to realize that service design is going to be another big aspect of customer experience and how they're going to be consuming what we produce or don't produce? Yeah, it's very important. I think maybe to echo what you said and, and break it down a little bit. In, in a lot of way, technology, there'll always be new disruptive products and, and services, but a lot of what we see today is companies that are using technology more in an enablement phase, right? So these are industries that have been around a long time and they're embracing technology to help them with something in their business. It could be efficiency, productivity, but it's mainly at, at the at furthering something within their traditional business. You know, I, I could make an argument that the way that these companies now are differentiating is less on the product innovation or even candidly the brand, but really how they show up end to end with that experience, right? How do you as a consumer experience, let's use Apple as an example, through e-commerce, through retail, through the service engine, through the genius bar, you know, through the marketing campaigns. It feels like they, at least for me, in many ways I feel special, right? Like, and so I think that this is the big shift uh, and a lot of companies, I think, are looking at technology, like I said, to uh, enable productivity, be more efficient, get more access to data. But as you mentioned, the real shift is that, you know, as a consumer, I'm, I personalize my experience every day, whether I'm, you know, whether, you know, we're shopping. I mean, exercise is completely personalized today in a way that didn't used to be. Uh, delivery, I mean, consumption, but then often when you then face a business, it suddenly feels like you aren't special, right? Like you aren't, that you, so today we're doing, as users, as consumers, we're doing the work of personalizing. And yet we know that the highest differentiation long-term we just talked about is how a business makes you feel like you're a customer of one. So I think it's incredibly important. I think part of the reason it doesn't happen as much is that, you know, there's a lot of legacy systems in place. And so part of the job of Genesis, why I think we're so well positioned, is making sure we can bring people through, have the technology, but bring them through that journey. You know, I would argue that in the next sort of 10 years, customer experience becomes more important than the other big legs of spend we've seen in technology, right? If you think about it, it's been MarTech, uh, Salesforce automation, and there's been you know, a lot of investment in the technology of, of customer experience, but it hasn't really been at that level of personalization that we've been discussing today. So it's huge. So uh, going back to um, the experience and um, how consumers are evolving, Bain & Company released their um, value, a hierarchy of values uh, for B2Bs, and it's more or less 
we used to think of things as differentiators as far as like first time, first call resolution, et cetera, as being those customer experience wins. And now those are just considered table stakes. And now we're seeing that to achieve, to get to the very top and get customer loyalty and advocacy, you have to connect your values with your consumer values. How important is that? Where do companies start to kind of make that connection? Yeah, I think, I mean, just to maybe address it, absolutely. It's like the same evolution of everything. Things that seem, you know, innovative and using technology, they just become, as you mentioned, like commodities, table stakes. And and so I, I think that uh, how companies embrace their values, you know, there's uh, um, not only to their shareholders or to their stakeholders, now you hear people talk about, but like what's at the root of their differentiation has to then translate into their experience design. Um, you know, and it's interesting, you know, we started with empathy earlier on. So I think it, if, if that was an, you know, if that was a stated in, in, um, goal for a company, uh, thinking about how you would design that in, it opens up all sorts of possibilities in this space, right? Like you need more context. You need to understand more of the, the mood someone's in, right? You know, the classic bad experience, which we often focus on is like, you know, why are you trying to be, you know, you're in a, in a distressed moment and they're trying to cross-sell and upsell you in that moment. I mean, my mother has a, told me the story, you know, she uses Sky and uh, she's kind of stressed, it's not working, and they're literally trying to ups, upsell her package. Uh, and so that's just the opposite of empathy, right? And so, so I think it goes beyond what can the technology do. It's like, how do you adapt to it and how do you think about your values as a company? Now, look, I think this goes even further if we just want to push the envelope. As a consumer, as a user, I really want that to be across companies. So I think the next evolution, you know, it's not just, did I have a great experience when I took an airline? It's like, no, did I have a great vacation experience end to end when I checked into the hotel? When something changed with the airline, did it ripple all the way through? Now, I think we got a ways to go from that, but that's actually the next piece of it because to your, to your point, I think we'll get better experiences and the values, then that'll become table stakes. Then it'll be, okay, hang on, how does it work? Um, across companies, and it's kind of what I think the airlines try to do with sort of the um, the, the code sharing and the and the joint alliances, and that's been kind of hard to do. But but I think that's the next stage beyond. On the topic of leadership, I have a question that's sort of in two parts. You are a boss, you are a leader, and have been for years now. Was there a leader in early on in your life that you thought that's somebody I want to emulate? maybe not as a whole, but there are chunks of that person's leadership style that you wanted to adopt as your own. And the second part of that question is, just as many things that we've been talking about today, there's no handbook on becoming a CEO or being the best possible CEO you can be. Out of your multiple experiences of being a CEO, uh, what are some things that you've learned along the way, like three things you've learned along the way that maybe you wish you would have known starting out the first time you became a CEO? Well, you know, I think the easiest way to relate to a leader is really to have the experience of one. Uh, I've read a lot of leadership books, but, you know, I, I'd say without any shadow of that, having the privilege to work with John Chambers uh, when he was CEO of Cisco, both in his team and then directly taught me a lot of things. I mean, I think he, he had many, many, many great attributes, but the power of alignment and communication and being consistent in that, um, using consistent taxonomy. I know it seems simple, but like it's so important. You know, we have, we, every company has this challenge. People are talking past each other often. Um, you know, he was just fantastic at sort of reading movements in, in the market, but the way he did it was by really engaging with customers. 
So I think he was just an incredible speaker, but but much more than that, right? Uh, you know, the other one, and again, privileged, uh, you know, I got to work for Steve Barmer, and he taught me sort of the really understanding data. Uh, I mean, you know, he is deep for the size of business, but not in a way where sort of in the micromanagement approach, but really making sure he understood the business. Because I think if you, you know, back to kind of something I wish I'd done sooner, if you can get a grasp on the overall business and you can get comfortable with it, your team, then you can empower them, right? I'm really a big believer in, in sort of empowerment, but it has to have accountability. So it comes back to the leader to then make sure that we're aligned on the KPIs and the metrics. I would say one thing that I wish I'd done sooner, I learned later is don't covet technology for technology's sake. In the technology industry, that can happen. I've had a couple of times I got very involved and sort of deep in a technology and kind of didn't let go soon enough. Let go in the sense I should have handed it to someone who's better qualified to execute on the project or let go in the sense, hey, this wasn't quite going to be the thing that we thought it was going to be. And so that's sort of this, this notion of being dynamic. The other thing I would just say that's a big learning for me is it's actually sort of interesting that what happens in the industry is we can get a little bit stagnant. You have to stay super current very dynamic. I mean, our space is super dynamic today, not just in terms of your sort of competitive entrance in the market, but all the discussion we've had today, it's moving fast, it's changing. The consumer expectations are changing. The traditional ways of doing business are changing. And so I think that's sort of really important. So what does that mean as a leader? That means you have to prioritize. There's only so many things you can be involved in. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a classic third, third, third leader, right? Third strategy, third outside stakeholders, the inside team. Something in that kind of range sort of forces you to say, look, I gotta, I've got to let my team run, but they do have to execute, right? So I think that if you set goals, people have to deliver against them. Mm. So I, I think of it sort of as my learning is trust the team, but make sure you create a high performance execution team. And how do you do that? By aligning the, aligning the goals and the metrics and then communicating clearly. So that's kind of the combo of Chambers and Barmer, only there with much, much better leaders than I'll ever be. We get a lot of fathers that we talk to. Um, I'm not a father uh, yet. Uh, I do have two small cats, not quite the same. But kind of for my own selfish purposes, I'm always really, really interested in the guys who have risen to a certain level of success and how they balance that work life with their family life. How do you maintain a focus on your four boys and your wife at home in this hugely challenging industry, in this role that you've just stepped into? You're six months in, and yet, obviously, you still have a tremendous responsibility to your family. Yeah, I mean, um, it's uh, it's always tough. And I think, you know, candidly, early in my career, I don't know if I did it that well. And uh, I'm not sure I do even today. So, you know, it's a, a constant balance, I think. Have an incredibly supportive wife, so that helps a lot. I also like to look at this as a you know, one perspective is that you know, we're doing incredible work, but it's a marathon, not a sprint. So, so pacing it one for your health is important. Two, the the family is a way to rejuvenate your your brain cells. <laughs> People need downtime as well. Um, so, I just try and, and find the balance. It all kind of comes back to what we talked about uh, in the previous question: is letting the team execute is an important way to create that balance. You know, I don't want to say that, you know, I'm like, I can do nine to five and then spend the time with the kids. It's not quite like that. Um, but trying to be there for the most important moments in their lives is important. Try and 
know that you love them and support them. Um, but it's I think uh, it's a constant struggle, you know. Right. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't want to say that I've really figured this out completely. But I think there's this thing, you know, there's a happiness is defined by a lot of things. But I, at Genesis, I'm really in the flow. I mean, I love it. I wake up every day and can't wait to come to work or get on the, you know, I'm on a long road trip coming up. And I think it's like everything. If you're in flow and you're happy, that projects back into your family. And so they're all kind of, a, they're all sort of, it's a link. So my, my advice is for someone who may be wrestling with that is find something you're really passionate about. Passionate doesn't mean to say that you have to work 23 hours a day on that one thing and have no time for your family. But if you're not, it doesn't reflect back on being present, right? Ultimately, the only thing you can really do when you are with your family, especially your children, is try and be as present as possible. This is incredibly difficult in today's society, especially for kids. Mm -hmm. But I actually think presence linked to your own state of mind. Like if you're calm because you're inherently more happy than unhappy, it tends to reflect. So that's what I try and do. In a year from now, what do you want to be better at personally? You know, I think that uh, as a person, you know, you have to constantly be learning. You know, I think about so two things that drive it. Everyone at some level is sort of this balance of IQ and EQ, right? Your, your intellectual quotient, your emotional quotient. And, and so for me, if the team is really well running, that gives me time to think more strategically. And uh, so I want to be better at that and better at a rhythm and cadence for the business that just runs. I feel like we're turning that corner already. Some of that is, look, as a new CEO, you just need to spend time. I need to earn the trust of, of my team and, and the organization. And so that would be one aspect. I think, yeah, the other aspect of it is, is I want to make sure that I'm still out there, getting out there. And, and, you know, I think it's easy at the beginning because everyone expects it. But then when you say out there, do you mean talking to employees or employees and customers, yeah. employees and customers? They're the lifeblood, right? Without those two, there's no there's no genesis. Right. So I want to be better at that or at least stay on the on the on the rhythm, not get fatigued or sort of think right. that, you know, I've checked the box on that. On a personal level, uh, I want to continue to to grow in some of my own personal um, interests. I actually love to paint. Uh, and I found since I've been Genesis, I haven't done it. So I got to get back to that. And then just grow, in, grow sort of with my peers in the ecosystem. I've been a little bit lucky, I would say, to have met some incredible other leaders. And, but it takes time and work. You know, you have to, have to work on that. So some self-development, uh, making sure that we can rescale. You know, it's easy to kind of get a little bit complacent as well. So grow intellectually. And there's so much to learn in this space. I mean, you know, I feel pretty grounded, but there's always so much more to learn. Nate and I always like to include more books in our reading list. And we were wondering, what is a book that has been seminal for you um, as a leader or just one of those books that has just stuck with you? Yeah, you know, uh, I've mentioned this a lot inside. And um, there's this book called Leadership and Self-Deception, which I would recommend everyone re reads. I apologize. I can't remember the author's name right now. But it's a very interesting idea about how in most cases, and this is, it's, it's somewhat business, but it could be in, in relationships, you know, family, friends, whatever, in your personal life. Uh, it's this notion that we're sort of in our own box. And the only way to really get out of that box is to recognize you're the one in the box and not blame other people. It's a very powerful one. I would just say on, on sort of the most interesting book I've read recently that really kind of, you know, when you read a book and you just kind of can't put it down is, is Pachinko, if anyone has read it. I, I uh, haven't. It's a, um, 
Well, it's a bestseller, and my wife's Korean, so it's a, it's about the Korean Japanese struggles. Uh, but it's much deeper than that. It's a really incredible book, and it's getting. So I would say that that's a great read for anyone. It's easy to read, and uh, it really talks about much more than just. It's a novel, but it's sort of based on a lot of historical fact. The other book, and this maybe tells you a little bit, me is a, a book called Song of Achilles. So I personally, as light reading, I like to read books that are maybe fiction, but based heavily on fact. You know, I love those with strong characterization. Historical fiction and whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, other leadership books, you know, leadership books are always hard because I think, as we mentioned, I mean, one thing to say is that there are some key attributes, but they're, they're very situational and sometimes can be quite analytical and, and sort of, or too abstract. I mean, Shoe Dog is an amazing book, uh, the Phil Knight story, the, his biography. So I, I personally struggle a little bit with recommending because I think they often are in the situation that a leader's looking for. I mean, there's been, you know, I mean, I think Jeffrey Moore books should be read. They're mm -hmm. just a great classical kind of way of thinking about company evolution. Yeah, I think books are resonate with you depending upon where you are in your life. Totally. Too. I think that's great yeah. observation, yeah. And you just kind of use it and make it your own yeah. as well, you too, as you're reading you're like, it. Listen, I learned whatever from this book at this time in my yeah, life. Yeah, I love regifting books that I've read. Candidly, I, I, I would say, you know, um, maybe a little bit feel bad about it. I'm not a heavy, heavy reader. I like to speed read books. You know, part of staying current, unfortunately, is you have to stay up with the tech. Right. You really do. And I think it's really important as a leader to do that. And you actually speed read? I, know, I wouldn't say super speed read. I don't think it's a superpower of mine, but yeah, I like to kind of go through fast. That explains how you were able to teach yourself on train rides. But there's many people that are much, much, much faster than I am. So. Oh, man. Tony, thank you very much. I know you've got to go. Uh, thank you so much for allowing us to take this moment with you. It's been incredible. It's a pleasure. Thanks, thank Emily. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you.